now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Cloudy overcast day here in Kamloops. Although you can see some blue sky here and there. We'll have to see if it wins through. Uh, we got a packed show for you. We're going to dive into the overdose crisis, talking to Nascondolith Chief Judy Wilson, uh, as well as Kamloops North MLA Peter Millibar will clock in on ALR concerns. And we'll have our weekly chat with lawyer and TRU lecturer Jeffrey Myers, this time focusing on the SNC-Lavalin controversy. But first, we begin focusing on ed education matters. Uh, pleasure to be joined by the Kamloops school board chair Kathleen Carpuck. Good morning Kathleen, how are you? Good morning, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you again. What's it been, like about 10 hours or something? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's jump right into it because I know there's a bunch of parents out there now who have some questions and concerns about how this is going to fold out. You guys essentially unanimously approved three motions which essentially reopens Westside Elementary, approves a bunch of money to renovate it, approves a catchment change in order to funnel students to it. Um, now it raises the question is we have a grade 7 class and David Thompson is going to graduate as normal. The grade 6 class now there's question marks about it. There was some spirited discussion last night about how to treat that class and there were some points made about okay, you know, obviously Obviously, parents uh, might want friends to stay together and that kind of thing, and the class as a whole maybe to graduate together. On the other hand, you've got class size and composition, so rules on class size. You've got to funnel a grade 7 class for some degree into the new school, I would imagine. So why don't we start there? How are you going to handle um, the stocking of Westside with students and all of the concerns that go with that, especially for that grade uh, 6 now and grade 7 cohort as of September? So uh, what's going to happen is basically uh, all students who are currently in kindergarten grade 5 that are in that West Side catchment will go to West Side Elementary. What the board did last night was to ask staff to put a priority for those current grade 6s at David Thompson who would normally be going over to Westside because that would be their catchment to stay at David Thompson. And we're going to put that process in place. That will be available for parents to register that they want their children to stay at David Thompson later this spring so that we can um, put appropriate staffing in place. And uh, concerns around that were the number of transitions that students might be making, right. that they move two years in a row because they move and do grade seven at Westside Elementary, and then they move again and do grade eight at Westside Secondary. So right. to minimize some of that movement, um, again, there are some very close-knit friendships there that those kids might want to stay together for one more year. Um, so those were concerns that were raised by parents and we're trying to address those. Okay, when can parents begin the process if they want to keep their kid at David Thompson, uh, their grade six kid now, uh, at David Thompson for the grade seven year? Can that happen now? Does it have to wait till, how does that work? So that'll be happening towards the end of the school year. And I'm sure that the principal will let parents know when they're ready to start looking at that. Okay. Will you be able to accommodate everybody? I don't know about that. That's going to be something that's going to be handled at the school level. Okay. So basically you're going to try to fulfill these requests, but at the end of the day, and I think the point was made by Joan O'Fee last night at the board meeting, you do have class size limits. You do have certain things you have to abide by. So you're going to have to figure out a way to, basically you can't make everybody happy here. 
we're going to try and make as many people happy as we can, recognizing that we're not going to succeed with everyone. <laughs> uh, the other big issue now that we're going ahead with this thing, uh, you got to renovate the school, so uh, hopefully that goes well. You don't find something that throws a curveball there. Uh, it was the traffic? There was a, there was concerns about increased traffic. Uh, you guys are working with the city, I understand, on speed limit and some other things. What's going on there? So we've uh, been in conversation with the city of Kamloops. They're open to uh, reducing the speed limit around the school through that. Uh, West Side Road uh, down to the uh, school zone, uh, down to the 30 kilometers per hour. Uh, we're looking at crosswalks and placement. Um, we do have the drop-off circle uh, at Westside Elementary. As long as it's used for drop-off and not for parking, it should be good. The nice thing is that we do have residential streets around the school that parents can park and let their kids walk uh, from the edge of the street onto the uh, school property. So we're not anticipating too many traffic problems that way. All right. Uh, final question on this, because I know parents are already asking on our social media channels, um, catchment area change has already been made. Uh, I believe they can go on the website and find out exactly what that map looks like because it's a little hard to describe in, in words, especially over radio. But Yeah, we have that uh, map on our website just at the district homepage. Um, because the actual catchment line runs along back fences, it is difficult to describe. <laughs> There's a couple cul-de-sacs in there. So it's very clearly delineated on a map on our website. So that would be the best place for parents to go and check to find out where they're at. Okay. Uh, Westside dominating the, uh, the news cycle this morning, but there was another uh, move at another school. Tell me about Vavenby. What happened there? So we were approached by the parents at Vavenby who requested that uh, last year that we expand the school by one grade because they wanted to keep some of their students there. They would normally be transferring down to Raft River and Clearwater. Uh, and then they approached us again this year to extend for another grade. We went up and had a conversation with those parents. They were able to tell us every single child in the community, <laughs> ages five and down, who are going to be going to that school. And the numbers really told us that uh, we can expand to a second classroom in that school by going to a K-7. It makes more sense uh, academically to have the two teachers up there. It allows them to do some collaboration and some shared teaching and it just made sense to expand the school. So we will be going almost grade by grade every year until they're a full K-7 in 2021. Okay, so how does that work then in reality? Like, what does next year look like and the year after that look like? So currently they're a grade uh, K-4. to four. Next year they would be K-5. to five, And then the following year it would be either K-5, uh, to K-6 to this coming year or K-5 to five, and then K-6, K-7 okay. the following year. Oh, that's so. interesting. So growth in the rural areas, that's exciting. It's very exciting. <laughs> uh, the other one that uh, caught my ear uh, at the board meeting last night was uh, some of the challenges up at Sun Peaks. What's going on there? Uh, Sun Peaks, we have a challenge in that we are currently outgrowing the site where the portables are at right yeah. now, and uh, they need another portable. So we have a challenge of where do we put it. So mm. we are scheduled to go up in May and have a conversation with the council up there and to try and find a uh, short and long-term solution to their uh, challenges with their school up there. Okay, how do you move... I mean, the ultimate solution, obviously, is a school rather than a series of portables. 
what's standing in our way other than the capital? And like, is it just the 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 district, the uh, the ministry coming to the table and saying, okay, we're going to build a school there? Is in any idea in a timeline when we could see that possibly being part of the conversation? Or so we've got a number of challenges up there. The first is uh, making sure that the school site is going to be suitable to have the number of portables that we need up there. That it's serviced. Um, who owns the site, um, whether or not we can put portables on it. So there's a number of issues that we're going to need to hash out over the next little bit. What's the growth up there look like? Because I know from a construction level, Sun Peaks is kind of exploding. Um, what's unclear to me is how much of that is sort of vacation, rental, uh, ski, condo activity as opposed to a family living up there. I assume you're seeing some kind of growth. Sun Peaks is one of our fastest growing communities. Okay. So. Wow. All right. Uh, the other one uh, you wanted to touch on, uh, update on the sagebrush situation. I know that's uh, kind of throwing a monkey wrench in Western Canada Theatre and their operations, as well as uh, some concert activity that's kind of flowing through right about now. What's going on there? So we've got the cracked truss. Uh, engineers are still looking over the building just to uh, try and get together a plan of how we can fix it. So um, really we are still waiting on an engineering report to find out what our options are. Okay. So uh, we're hoping that Sagebrush will be reopened for September. Wow. Okay. So that's a little longer than the month or two, the sort of timetable we were initially kind of sold. I imagine that's going to throw some more curveballs for events and such that were scheduled through the summer, which is probably one of the busier periods. Yeah. So, yes, unfortunately, the sagebrush is out of commission. Um, having a crack in your roof truss is uh, pretty serious, and we don't want to uh, endanger anyone. So before we put the theater back into commission, we want to make sure that it's uh, totally safe. Okay. Any idea when construction might? I mean, if it's September, I assume the summer months, the crews potentially could get in there? Or we still don't know until you see this report? We still don't know. The engineers okay. are still working on what our options are. So until we have that report from the engineers, we can't go forward. Wow. That is a huge headache. But on the other hand, it's better to identify it beforehand and go through a rescheduling nightmare than have a roof come down, I suppose. Good grief. Okay, Kathleen, always a pleasure. Uh, it's a challenging time for the school district and look forward to talking to you again soon. Yes, it was good to be on. There we go. School Board Chair Kathleen Carpuck, Westside is going to reopen and I'm sure there'll be more similar conversations living in the future. Uh, we'll talk to Kathleen again soon. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk First Nations and the overdose crisis. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Your opinion, call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Uh, pleasure to welcome to the program the Chief of the Nisconolith Indian Band, as well as the Secretary-Treasurer of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, Judy Wilson. Good morning, Judy. Uh, good morning. How are you this morning? Well, uh, our community still continues to experience the fentanyl deaths. Uh, in Vancouver on Saturday, we had another young man that, uh, you know, we had to you know, do funeral services for, and so as in our press release, uh, you know, these fentanyl deaths and care of fentanyl continue. 
Yeah, it has been an unbelievable story after story of tragedy. Um, First Nations communities uh, uh, on the forefront of this. I, I took a look at your release yesterday. I was caught by some of the stats, and I think people should hear this. Uh, according to the release, First Nations people five times more likely than non-First Nations citizens to experience an opioid-related overdose event, three times more likely to die from an opioid-related overdose. So, Judy, to you, what do we do? Obviously, a horrific situation. How do we solve it? Well, those are some stats, but there's also stats on First Nations women who are even more uh, affected than the general stats for um, Aboriginal uh, people. In, ge- in general, for women, it's uh, you know um, five times more likely, but also uh, eight times more uh, impacts towards dose and doses, uh, overdose and death. So I think you know there's needs to be better data collected for sure and then the other part is there really needs to be a community by community solution so our community solution here at Nascona might look different than some of the other communities but there is a common needs especially for resources I keep hearing about you know all these different resources for mental health because Judy Darcy actually released the minister and she released uh, you know her statement towards this issue that they're going to continue with these resources but how are they filtering down to the community how are they filtering down to those families in crisis so that's where it really has to make those changes uh, in our, within these communities and you know in the urban populations as well. Uh, because, you know, I went to a medical practitioner's uh, session last year hoping to find some answers, but basically the medical practitioners in the presentation I saw where they were saying we, we treated with methadone and with uh, alcohol and drug treatment, they said there's two times the chance of relapse and uh, fatality. So, you know, I was going like, well, usually that's what we prescribe as a solution. So that just tells me, uh, you know, treating drugs with drugs, uh, does that work with methadone? You know, we don't, like, where's the data on that? Because I've known people in our community that have been on methadone for over five years. And meanwhile, the methadone, the treatment they prescribe, you're supposed to be on it for a year and then um, wean yourself off and then go, you know, you're clear. But it's that's not obviously what's happening so we need, uh, you know, to understand it more. But most importantly, I uh, 100% believe it's our reconnection to the land, the language and the culture and our identity that will really help with, uh, you know, addressing these issues. And the second part of it is rebuilding our families and our communities uh, so that they have, you know, the people and their families that will help them uh, because that's what was broken down through residential school and 60 scoop and, you know, all the colonial oppression that our people have uh, been experiencing. And uh, I'm really uh, glad to see some of, you know, people in our community that are, you know, continuing to work with our people irregardless of any resources or funding or support. I, I see it and uh, you know, I do my best to support them, uh, but we really need better resources and uh, better strategies within our communities. Uh, you know, I, I see Ottawa and provincial funding continuing. They're saying, well, we're good providing this, we're providing that, but how accessible is it to our people and, you know, how is it exactly getting to those uh, people that really need it? 
I want to touch on something that you 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 talked about just a minute ago, uh, because one of the other stats that jumped out at me is that uh, First Nations people are twice as likely to be dispensed an opioid than non-First Nations citizens. And, and you made the point that uh, methadone treatment and things like that. Uh, from your perspective, should um, First Nations ancestry, should First Nations as a whole be assessed and treated differently in the medical system in order to try and avert an opioid addiction and erode that may end in an overdose death? Uh, that's what I'm explaining. There's not enough data, really. Uh, you know, I think the data streams or findings are general. And, and you know, because I've done records management and these, you know, not I'm not saying medical surveys, but surveys and there's a way to do them to extract uh, data that you can really tell what's going on and and then there's no data even from our communities so all we know is you know yes they're going to the doctors doctors are saying oh okay this is what we feel uh, would help this this issue and meanwhile it could be intergeneration trauma it could be a number of things associated with it and uh, all they're being given is prescription and uh, fentanyl, you know, to address this uh, uh, high degree of chronic uh, pain and suffering. So I don't, I support our Indigenous wellness and our uh, Indigenous equipment ways of uh, healing and I, be, I believe that's also a part of the, the answers but of course the, it has to be in the way because these uh, uh, high potency drugs are, are, are a different way of we have to approach it, and uh, and it's almost like instant addiction in some cases. So, you know, we have to be more aware of it. Uh, but you know, like I've been really looking to different ways. Uh, but this May um, conference uh, upcoming in Calgary, uh, you know, from the sixth uh, uh, to tenth, I believe. Uh, you know, I think it's going to provide some of those community solutions and uh, you know, community-based. Uh, uh, approaches that we need and it's almost like you know uh, we really have to strengthen those families and each family member is going to have to have someone aware in those families so they can deal with this and then come together to work jointly you know at a community family level community and nation level to address this because what a solution might be for our community or nation might be different to another nation so though it's not one size fits all and it's uh you know really and it's a crisis we had a state of emergency called on the flooding and wildfires uh, and we have uh, this crisis with the opioid we have a crisis every day in our community and we have to somehow get ahead of it and work, uh, you know, within, you know, the regions. I'm not just saying within our community because the drugs are coming in from somewhere. And, uh, you know, so it's happening, you know, and the distribution and, you know, the addictions. Uh, you know, we have to look at all different uh, levels in a multi-pronged sort of approach to this issue. Judy, it's a horrific story, and I hope that there is, uh, on every angle, some kind of improvement or solution in the near future, although uh, if the last couple of years have taught us anything, it's going to be a long, tough slog to get there, but I hope we do get there. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you.
That's Judy Wilson. She's the Secretary Treasurer of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs as well as the Chief of the Nisqually Indian Band talking about the opioid crisis and the uh, horrific cost among First Nations communities. Uh, another stat that I uh, want to throw out there, uh, apparently an opioid overdose in some First Nations reserves uh, is reported nearly every two hours. So some pretty horrific stuff there and the overdose crisis as a whole uh, BC-wide continues to roll on taking lives. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll talk to Kamloops North MLA, Peter Millibar. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the MLA for Kamloops North, Peter Millibar. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good to have you on. Uh, listen, I brought you on because uh, your party is concerned about some changes being made uh, that impact the Agricultural Land Reserve. As, in essence, Agriculture Minister Lana Popham has introduced a bill uh, saying exclusion applications will now be submitted only by local governments, First Nations, or the province, uh, saying this will further limit speculation involving farmland and protect the ALR. What's your beef with this? Well, you know, it's not just this bill. I think this bill just starts to highlight um, the lengths of, of uh, um, government control that we're starting to now see take shape with this uh, NDP government and, and led by John Horgan. It's it's one thing after another, and, and this is kind of uh, maybe the, the final straw, hopefully, that people are starting to, to be aware of, the, the sheer volume of data that they're starting to collect on people, um, the sheer uh, volume of, of things that people are going to now have to register around um, to, to prove to the, the government that all they do is own a home and live in a home or, or rent a home out. Um, and now this, uh, where essentially they have changed the wording in the legislation so that a person no longer means a person, a person means a municipality um, again um, you know I, I think everyone accepts that there should be some fundamental land ownership rights in this province and that if you own a piece of property uh, you should have the right uh, to apply to the jurisdiction uh, responsible uh, if you want to make a change in that use it doesn't mean you're, you're guaranteed acceptance it doesn't mean that uh, land would be removed uh, or that the, the commission would agree with you but as a landowner, I, I think you should have that right, and the government has not taken that right away from you. Now, as I understand it, and, and the legislation says, and I'll just read it verbatim here, a person may apply to have land excluded if the person is the owner and is the government of B.C., a local government or First Nation, or a prescribed public body. Uh, and your take is that it cuts the actual landowner out of the process? Is that a fact, or is that just a badly worded sentence within the bill itself? Well, we'll have to get clarification of that uh, as we get into uh, committee stage on this bill. But uh, when I read it again this morning before I came on, it, it seems to be very clear that uh, uh, the 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 definition, uh, how they, they interpret person, uh, cuts the actual landowner out of the loop. Now, um, there's also contradictory language in there where it, it makes it very unclear if uh, land requires a rezoning, um, that it's no longer uh, eligible as well. Well, most ALR land would require rezoning. This means that, uh, you know, for, for people in, in my area, up the North Thompson, and, and even in the South Thompson riding, um, you know, you, you have those uh, slightly rocky outcroppings of five or ten acres that that, uh, you've been eyeing up for for you know probably decades waiting for the time to subdivide off uh, uh, to make a few extra dollars to, to put back into your farm operations your ranch operations 
and uh, you won't even be allowed to apply for that anymore. Um, you would need the local government to go through a lot of steps ahead of time uh, before you're even allowed to uh, have that local government then uh, forward on your behalf. And so, um, you know, the, the basic premise of property rights are that, that people get to apply uh, for their own property to the decision-making body that's going to be making that decision. And and in this case, um, you know, it's the ALC uh, through the ALR Act, and, and uh, you will not be allowed uh, to approach the ALC on your own behalf. And, um, you know, in the city of Camels, if you want to rezone your property from single family to an apartment or, or a duplex, you have that right to approach the city as the, the local government decision-making body um, to do that. You don't wait for the province to tell you whether you can or can't uh, even apply to ask. And, and this is... You know, I think at its core problem that we're seeing, we're seeing the, the speculation tax registry where people have to register not just this year, but every single year, uh, declaring themselves not to be speculators, declaring themselves to have lived in their homes for 40 and 50 years. Um, you know, it, it cuts across a whole lot of uh, various areas where we're seeing this government want to uh, make sure that people are continually registering with the government. And and you think of an attorney general that used to be the head of the, the uh, civil liberty Union, uh, David Eby, uh, the sheer volume of information the government is now requiring out of citizens to prove that you're not doing anything nefarious with your real estate holdings or your your uh, investment portfolios um, is quite shocking when you think of the social insurance numbers that are required and the, the declarations that they're requiring in a, in a wide range of things. Now, you're not unfamiliar with how uh, civic government works uh, after a long time spent as, as Kamloops mayor. Uh, you would probably know this better than I, but if if this legislation plays out and, and whatever clarity is provided means that a landowner needs to march down to the local government in order to get any ALR approval for ALR land or any use of farmland or whatever the case may be. Um, is this something that they would do in that process anyway prior to the change, Peter, or is this a downloading of action that local government's now going to have to take on behalf of various landowners and, and title holders? Well, if uh, if it bears out where you're allowed to get it rezoned ahead of time and then the municipality forwards it on, it's a, it's a pure download. Um, what we saw in my case, uh, in my experience through the regional district and through the city, was generally speaking, uh, those governing bodies were were hesitant to, to make a final determination on an application in terms of rezoning until they found out whether it was being excluded or not because they did not want to... Um, say in their in their submission to the ALC um, that they were fully supportive of a, of an application because that could taint the public hearing process that comes after being excluded. In this case, um, the the minister is saying that because her own land commission can't keep up with the volume of work. Um, to get rid of that volume of work, essentially, they're going to throw it at the feet of the local governments to deal with this. Well, if local governments just turn around and rezone everything, she hasn't changed any backlog. So she's obviously hoping that uh, the local governments will start to to say no to everything. Um, And and that's not really fair to the local governments. What happens if they start rezoning all these uh, applications and forward them on, and then they don't get excluded? Now you're going to have these weird zoning maps out there with with, uh, you know, sections of, of large pieces of property that are, you know, uh, technically zoned for, for something other than farm use but not allowed out of the ALR. Um, you know, she, the, the, this is a, a complete mess. Uh, the Premier needs to answer for this because he's, 
he's created this mess in, in many ministries, and um, it's not acceptable. It's it's a, a pure download towards local governments and, and making them have to do the heavy lifting on these types of applications instead of the commission the way it was set up to be, let alone that in the same bill they're getting rid of um, any regional-type view, and they're, they're creating uh, one board again, which will... Uh, hear all these uh, applications come through. Uh, granted, there will be one person from each region sitting on the board, um, but it, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a total mess, and it's something that the minister has, has thought for many years is the way to go, and, and has refused, now that they're in government, to realize that uh, what they thought would work in opposition just simply won't work when it comes to actually, um, you know, clearing up backlogs or not. Now, under the BC Liberals, one of the main criticisms of the ALR land was that, and the current minister calls it Swiss cheesing, but essentially they would swap fertile, in this case a lower mainland land, out of the ALR for less fertile or less uh, valued land in the north or the interior or what have you. Uh, a lot of people got up into arms about this, and in some essence they're using this as, as a justification for these particular changes to strengthen the ALR protection. So I guess to you, uh, does the ALR land need to be more protected? And if so, and if this isn't the avenue to do it, how do you do it? Well, I think if, if the ALC uh, wants to to be um, more restrictive and harder and harder for people to be able to remove, that's fine. That's within their purview. And if, if that's the, the choice that they choose to go down, um, you know, that's probably defendable in terms of what they're doing down in Lower Mainland or not. Um, what the minister is proposing through this bill does, does nothing of that uh, kind. And if it's meant to be an end run to do that, the minister should just come out and say that. Um, but what this is actually doing in practice is is downloading a lot of uh, time and cost to, to local governments. It's it's putting uncertainty into the, the landowners' hands in terms of needing to go through local government first before they do anything with ALC. Um, you know, it, it can get very expensive for a homeowner to try to figure out um, just the rezoning application, and then they get that approved, and then they go to the ALC and get turned down. And so, uh, you know, there could be a lot of extra costs borne by uh, landowners through this new process. And, and it's it's Frankly, it's just flawed. Um, they don't need to change um, uh, what they were doing. They need to change maybe how they were getting to a decision or or saying that you can no longer swap out that one piece for the other piece. But the way this is going, um, essentially, it, it's worded very much so, like the minister is trying to say and the premier is trying to say, that uh, don't even bother bringing an application forward. Nothing will be approved anywhere in the province. And uh, the ALR is essentially frozen in time now. And, and uh, those of us in the interior know that there are legitimate sections of land that just are not farmable. We're talking about uh, a land reserve that was created in the 70s and people just drew lines on a map. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily um, relate to what is happening on the ground uh, 50 years later. And, and the way this bill has been structured, there is going to be very little, if any, latitude to ask for an exclusion um, moving forward. Peter, always a pleasure. We're out of time, but thanks uh, for taking a few minutes to talk with us this morning. Okay, thank you. Anytime. 
That is Kamlensdorf MLA and environment critic Peter Millibar uh, talking about the B.C. Liberals' contention with changes uh, that, uh, being sold as ways to protect the ALR. They, as you heard there, completely disagree with that interpretation, say this whole thing, as Peter Millibar said, is a mess. We will reach out to Lana Popple, the Agriculture Minister, uh, and hope to have her on the show to get the other side of this story. And for now, we'll take a quick break, and on the other side, we'll talk as we do every day, or every Tuesday, to Jeffrey Myers, uh, this time focusing on SNC-Lavalin. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by Jeffrey Myers, lawyer and lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University. been about a week since we had a chance to touch base. Uh, Good morning, Jeffrey. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane. It's great to be on with you, as usual. Yeah, yeah, cheers. Good to hear your voice. Uh, Okay, so like I said, we do have a lot to catch up on, and we normally talk U.S. politics. We certainly will again, but um, a political controversy has been dogging the Prime Minister for a few weeks now, and that revolves around SNC-Lavalin and whether or not the Prime Minister and or his office directly uh, put down pressure or interfered uh, with then-Justice Minister Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould in the SNC-Lavalin prosecution. Now, we've had a couple of Development since then. Uh, some of his uh, Liberal MPs have, uh, I guess, dissented in Jane Philpott and uh, Selena Cesar Chavez. Uh, and there seems to be this problem that continues to dog the Prime Minister. As you look at this thing, and this is a very interesting and uh, intricate legal story unfolding uh, behind the scenes of this sort of political crisis, what are you seeing? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I, th- I do think you're right to describe this as, as the kind of crisis which sort of plays out right at the border of law and politics. Right, so I think on the political side, it's sort of very significant that as this um, uh, this 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 question has sort of been more and more in the public scrutiny, and you've had hearings, for example, by the Justice Committee in Parliament, where some of the principals involved have testified, and those have been available for Canadians to watch. And uh, is that Jane uh, Philpott, who was a high-ranking um, a minister who held several sensitive and uh, important portfolios in the Trudeau government? Uh, was the first other minister to resign in support of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. And uh, she has a lot of respect in a lot of corners, particularly on the kind of professional and policy side. Uh, folks that aren't longtime, lifelong members of the Liberal Party, she and uh, former Attorney General uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould were seen to be two sort of heavy-hitting intellectual powers and, you know, policy people in the party that, you know, weren't just lifelong um, politicians. Uh, and that uh, having them, the, and they're also high-profile women, of course, in a, in a cabinet, which uh, Mr. Trudeau made much of wanting to have uh, demonstrate the highest principles of equity. And so I think the symbolic value in that support for uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould and the fact of now these two women being outside of cabinet, I think that's very damaging to Mr. Trudeau's, what some of the ana- analysts, the political analysts have called his personal brand, as in the personal brand which represents, you know, um, uh, sunshine and uh, honesty and transparency and a new way of doing things. I think that's clearly not the case now. That's the political side of it. Of course, the political, even more on the political side of it, there's a lot of different strands you can tease out both on the legal and the political side, but more so on the political side, you have also this dynamic where you have a company which purports to be a major employer uh, and job provider in Quebec and in Canada overall. And then you have a minister from Western Canada who's basically 
uh, use, saying that the rule of law prevents her from sort of saving this company. And so there's all these questions around whether, in fact, the facts we have are correct about like how many jobs would, in fact, be lost, but also this kind of positioning now where Liberal Party supporters, people who support the government, have to decide you know, are they going to support the position, a uh, kind of line in the sand around the rule of law drawn by Ms. Wilson-Raybould, or the idea of, of saving a major Quebec employer who's also a donor to the Liberal Party. So you can see how this could divide caucus and potentially um, the areas that, you know, Quebec needs support both in Quebec and in Western Canada. Uh, and if this is potential of opening up that kind of divide, a perception sometimes that uh, that you know in Western Canada and in Anglo in English speaking Canada generally that Quebec politics are a bit corrupt, and then the perception on the Quebec side that you know uh, the rest of Canada you know views it with a jaundiced eye and is ne- and is never willing to um, you know understand its issues. And of course, you've heard some quarters say um, you know on the more conservative side, probably people who are um, you know anyway conservative supporters say, oh, why wasn't the Prime Minister interfering on behalf of pipelines like this? We want to see him be a more robust uh, advocate for commercial interests. So a variety of different views. Um, you're going to have an ethics inquiry now. It's going to give us a bit more of an objective uh, perspective on what's happening. Mr. Scheer calling for the resignation of the Prime Minister. I think unlikely the Prime Minister is going to resign or should resign under the circumstances based on the information we have right now. It's, um, it's certainly a very serious thing, uh, whether it rises to the level of requiring the Prime Minister to resign um, is another question. You know, we still don't have all the information. We're going to have to wait until the Ethics uh, Commission uh, completes its work. But, you know, I think what's apparent is that the um, Prime Minister himself and then um, Katie Telford, who's uh, his uh, um, uh, his press secretary, or sorry, chief of staff, and then Gerard Butts, who's his principal secretary, who's obviously resigned early on, I think, in an attempt to sort of shoulder some of the blame for what later came out uh, before the Justice Committee. You know, none of these folks are lawyers, and I don't think they completely understood the importance of protecting and safeguarding and erring on the side of caution when it comes to dealing with the Attorney General in her role as the Chief Law Enforcement Officer who oversees effectively the Director of Public Prosecutions. And so they didn't understand, I don't think they really understood what the line was that they were not supposed to approach, let alone cross. And it seemed to me, it seems based on the evidence I've seen and now the resignations that I've seen and in, 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 in the credibility of those people, in particular the evidence-driven presentation that Ms. Wilson-Raybould made with uh, the advice of her lawyer, former Supreme Court Justice Tom Cromwell, suggests that they they really did step over that line. And that line, as we've discussed before, is known in public law circles as the Shaw-Cross doctrine, the idea being that you can um, certainly discuss, have discussions with the Attorney General about concerns, policy issues, or otherwise, but you can't direct the Attorney General in their role as the Chief Law Enforcement Officer or the person who oversees public prosecutions to prosecute or not prosecute for an improper purpose. Uh, and in this case, you know, saving jobs or economic purposes are, 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 not sufficient, are not reasons to override public interest decisions made by those with the appropriate power and discretion to make those decisions. So it's a, it is a, it is true. Of course, people will say, you know, look, uh, you know, if Jody Wilson-Raybould had just sort of played along with this thing and hadn't come out, nobody would ever know about this and haven't things like this always happened? And the answer is probably things like this have happened in the past. 
and it's it's not clear that other prime ministers haven't come up to this line or crossed this line in other ways. But we do have an attorney general who has blown the whistle, who has raised this issue, and now we've seen even the clerk of the Privy Council come out, sort of siding with the prime minister, and that gave me great reasons to pause. Said, what's the head of the civil service sort of suggesting that the um, uh, that the attorney general should bow to the prime minister's will in some way? That's a disturbing position for somebody who I think is a is the chief. Um, you know, uh, neutral, non-political member of the civil service to see that relationship with the PMO, I think, is is disturbing for those of us who are sort of watchers of politics and law in Ottawa. So, I mean, again, all of those pieces, and of course, and I haven't even mentioned the the questions of gender or the questions I have a little bit, but I haven't me- mentioned also the delicate question of you know the fact that uh, the former uh, minister of justice was the most high-profile um, indigenous person uh, around the cabinet table and, of course, the first Indigenous uh, Minister of Justice, and that uh, her treatment has a sort of, um, you know, knock-on effect for a very delicate stage in uh, this government's relationship with Indigenous people. So politics and law all playing out here. You know, whether there's an actual legal violation of the law, clearly Ms. Wilson-Raybould herself has said she doesn't think so. And the point being is that if she thought there was a violation of the law at that time, then she would have been beholden to step down she would have been beholden to step down immediately, right? Like if she thought there was the law being broken, she couldn't have waited and reported on this later. But she thought she'd resisted uh, the pressure and that she was going on, and then later on she was let go. But so really, again, all the principal actors, including Ms. Wilson-Raybould, I mean, she's not made the point that the prime minister has acted illegally. She's not calling on him to resign. It's not clear. This is still open to Mr. Trudeau to sort of try to mend fences and bring her back in the cabinet. But the question of whether the law was broken or not is one thing. Again, there'll be an independent inquiry um, as well. But the question of whether political norms were breached and whether the rule of law, as in the idea that the same law is supposed to apply to everybody, whether you're a high-power um, politician or high-power business person or just a, a lowly person, uh, member of the public, that principle has clearly been violated and, and shown to be disregarded, at least if you're to take the side of the story that um, Jody Wilson-Raybould and that the Globe and Mail reported. Yeah, and uh, I'm not a lawyer, which is why I like talking to you, but um, all of this revolving around the deferred prosecution agreement, and it occurred to me that when Jody Wilson-Raybould was moved out of as the Attorney General uh, and then uh, moved to Veteran Affairs, and, and we're aware of the drama that happened after that, we now have David Lametti, who's this country's Attorney General, who is publicly not ruling out using a deferred prosecution agreement, although I think that legal channel is quickly closing. But uh, from a perception level, I thought, as a non-lawyer, I thought, you know, there is a perception here that we've moved one attorney general out who didn't want to do what the prime minister wanted and now one there who seems to be opening the door to kind of doing what uh, the PMO might want to have done here. Uh, as a lawyer, how did you sort of read that? Well, let me first say, as I said, I think before on your show, that um, you know I know David Lametti. David Lametti was a professor when I and a member of the faculty when I was a law student at McGill, and his wife, Geneviève Somi, is a very well-known professor has been a friend and a mentor of mine for years. So I know him. I mean, so again, obviously what I'm going to say, take with a grain of salt, I, I like the guy. Um, and I think he's a very honest person, and I think he's a deserving attorney general. But I, I think the way in which he came in did create, unavoidably, the, the kinds of perceptions that you're, you know, you're describing. And the fact that he's a Montreal area MP, uh, you know, doesn't help matters. And the fact that he's a white male, and this is, there's this racial politics and the question of 
um, the relationship between the government and, and indigenous people and the role that Jody Wilson-Raybould played in that. All of these realities are political realities, and I think people are right in many cases to sort of be upset by what they see represented um, here. Now, I think as a practical matter, there's not going to be a deferred prosecution. I just don't think that's possible now. Remember, one of what, what happened, what, what's being alleged here is and or sort of and, and clearly on the facts is being acknowledged. There was, there was a federal court ruling um, on Friday, right, that there would be no order that a, that the attorney general should have a second or outside opinion on this decision not to prosecute, not to give a deferred prosecution agreement to SNC Lavalin. That was like the kind of most insulting and kind of um, I think pejorative thing that you know people like Bill Murnau and the clerk of the Privy Council, the Prime Minister's office, and his people could ask. Ms. Wilson-Raybould is, well, why don't you get a second opinion, as if she's not the final opinion as the, or at least her decision to defer to the public prosecution service. It, that's the final, you don't need to have, there's no other adult in the room which should be there, right? You can't just keep going for opinions until you get the one you want. So that, but that went its way through federal court, and the federal court said there's no basis to order that um, that additional sort of thir- sort of outside opinion that would be totally unprecedented. So I think with that and the public um, scrutiny surrounding this, I think it's unlikely that that deferred prosecution is going to go ahead. And if it did, it might have an enormous political cost. So who knows? But I also think the more interesting kind of footnote on this whole thing is, um, you know, that we that there's claims right that five thousand jobs would be lost, and that if the deferred prosecution agreement was entered into, it's the only way to save those jobs because it, it would it wouldn't have this draconian measure of preventing SNC Lavalin from taking contracts from the federal government, but. But there are those who say, well, they could still take uh, contracts from the provincial governments, from foreign governments. It's not entirely clear this would do in the company anyway. Um, And it's also not unclear what quality jobs those are, where those jobs are located. I think we're entering into a transitionary period in our politics, Shane, where uh, the view that used to be that having a big corporation in town locating their head office or headquarters there, it was up to politicians to do everything in their power to keep them there and that that was, quote unquote, good for jobs. I don't know if you noticed this, but, um, you know, when um, um, Alexandria Octavo Cortez, the 29-year-old uh, Puerto Rican woman who became the new uh, junior congressperson from the Bronx, took over. It was from a veteran Democrat. It was on this issue of whether Amazon's headquarters, second headquarters, should be located in the Bronx at all. And she said, no, she said, these are going to be good quality jobs. This is all a total ruse. And that argument won the day, much to the shock of you know mainline Democrats who said, how can it be that not having this corporate office here is a good thing. I think a lot of the claims that have typically been made around the relationship between having an employer in a city or a province and the number of jobs that that creates, I mean, those are subject to debate and discussion. Uh, and they're not, we shouldn't take any of that for granted either. Nonetheless, regardless, it's an improper purpose if once the uh, Department of uh, Public Prosecutions has made the determination uh, that somebody should be prosecuted and they shouldn't be given a deferred prosecution, which is a, a lesser um, form of punishment. Uh, that, that decision can't be interfered with politically if we are to have an independent idea of the rule of law. All right, let's uh, move our focus to the United States where we've had some uh, wrinkles in the ongoing uh, Trump-Russia collusion investigation uh, and some of the fallout around that, namely around Paul Manafort, one-time Trump campaign chair, uh, who was sentenced to 47 months in prison. That sentence drawing some criticism uh, as an example, and it's been bandied about on social media. Uh, they've cited Crystal Mason, who's a black woman, mistakenly cast a ballot in a local election. She got sent behind bars for five years. Yeah. So the, the Manafort sentence, well, 
well below what uh, the was the sort of uh, federal guideline of 19 to 25 years. Um, again, you know much better than I. Is this an eyebrow-raising sentencing or not? Well, I mean, the guide, the federal guidelines, remember, and this is true in Canada and the United States as well, even where there are sentencing guidelines or even where parties agree on a sentence and judges aren't bound, they still have the inherent jurisdiction to do what they want. My understanding is a lot of the federal guidelines around white-collar crimes tend not to actually get applied and that the lower um, sentences, the, the, the permitted range where there's no lower sentences, whatever the judge thinks is appropriate. And it is true, and I mean, it is something that's not, it's not a question of opinion, but I mean, people, for example, you know, who are um, racialized minorities, particularly African Americans, I mean, they do enormous amounts of uh, jail time and longer jail time for all kinds of nonviolent crimes. Uh, including crimes having to do with the drug trade, um, whereas you know individuals who are involved in very serious forms of tax evasion and fraud, which was by the way what this trial was about. There's another trial coming up uh, we can talk about. Uh, which another trial has been concluded or in a sentencing that's coming up for a different judge in D.C., which may result in more jail time. But for these crimes, um, you know, the, the 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 folks don't always get the kind of sentence that you know people think they might, and people. Um, are angry about this, but the judge has been very clear from the whole time here that he never viewed these charges as having anything to do with the Mueller investigation or collusion with Russia. And they had to do with basically avoiding paying taxes uh, for all this lucrative money that Mr. Manafort was making in being a, a political advisor for these pro-Russian interests in the Ukraine, which is sort of part of painting the broader picture of what's going on here and what Mueller has been investigating, but it's only a part of it. And the fact that you know he didn't get more uh, then I think it was a four-year sentence, um, doesn't mean that it's all over, that Mr. Manafort did nothing. The other judge who's going to be hearing, who's going to be sentencing him in Washington, D.C., is sentencing him for a series of um, criminal acts, including obstruction of justice and, and uh, acts of dishonesty, attempting to cover up, uh, or crimes of conspiracy, attempting to cover up his financial interests. Those are much closer, more closely related to the Manafort um, investigation and to Mr. Trump and his campaign. And they could uh, net an additional 10 years of jail time for Mr. Manafort. So Mr. Trump wanted to make hay of it. Yeah, he got a judge who was a bit skeptical that, um, you know, of, of the prosecution sort of sensing that maybe Mr. Manafort was getting it a bit harsh because of the fact that he was sort of involved with Trump generally. But again, even on that understanding, he's going to this other judge. He's going to have another hearing in the D.C. court, and they're likely going to apply a, a larger sentence, and you're going, and it's going to be in response to crimes that are more closely connected to the question of collusion, or at least lying to cover it up. And you you touched on something there. I mean, Mr. Trump did come out. He's done this a few times now, trying to craft his narrative, and he falsely claimed yeah. the judge in sentencing Manafort said there was no collusion with Russia, which isn't exactly what he said. You and you did touch on that. But uh, your thought on his again attempt to kind of you know um, you know uh, dominate the narrative here. Well, look, this, these charges were not, I mean, they're not collusion-related charges. They never, they never were, right? So it, it's, it, it, Mr. Trump can claim all the victory he wants. The fact is the guy's already in jail doing time. He's going to remain in jail, whether he spends the rest of his life or not. He's not this is his former campaign uh, manager. You know, I don't, I don't, he can try to drag a victory out of the jaws of defeat for a lenient sentence, but that's really not a good place to be when you're a president you know, facing re-election. And like I say... You know, when Mr. Manafort um, faces his next um, sentencing hearing, he's going to be before a judge who's who knows, for example, who's who's uh, who's um, 
who knows that he violated his plea agreement, and, he, and that that can be a compound effect also on his charges as well. So Mr. Trump is is speaking too soon, and he's claiming a kind of victory where there's none. All right, let's uh, let's back clean up here and uh, just sort of a final topic to throw at you. Yeah. Uh, we are starting to now lay the foundation for the 2020 presidential race. Uh, the Democrats are trying to figure out who their candidate is. Uh, we don't have a full field yet. Things haven't yeah. really gotten off the ground, but we do have, uh, you know, Joe Biden is 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 come out in the talk as uh, perhaps a front runner. Uh, Mr. Sanders is already off and running. And on the GOP side of things, there is some talk and some. Uh, movement to possibly oppose Mr. Trump uh, instead of just allowing him to kind of stand his ground and, and fend off a Democrat challenger. Uh, how are you sort of reading the tea leaves there? Well, I mean, I think the likelihood of a viable challenge to Mr. Trump is low. I mean, there's Larry Hogan, who's the, who's the uh, governor of Maryland, who's well-respected and has been a kind of critical voice. And there are a few other Republicans potentially who could throw their hats in the rings, but it's unlikely. I mean, if you look at that CPAC conference, right, where the Republican president speaks every year, I mean, a few years ago, those people weren't pro-Trumpers. You know, they backed a variety of different people and a variety of different sort of conservative philosophies. They're now all Trump supporters, and his uh, apparatus and his supporters have largely taken over the party. So I don't think he's going anywhere, um, and I don't think there'll be a viable um, challenge to him. And I think history will record that poorly. There should be principled Republicans you know, people like Mitt Romney and Jeff Flake, if they really mean what they say, should challenge him in a primary, even if they lose. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, on the Democratic side, you know, it's a huge field right now, and there's a lot of candidates who have overlapping policies. I mean, I think the most noteworthy thing to um, to understand about this uh, at this primary field as it's shaping up is that the policies, uh, the progressive policies, the policies that are sometimes described as Democratic Socialist policies that were first mooted by Mr. by Senator Sanders in his 2016 run against Hillary Clinton have now become mainstream so the kind of neoliberal centrist consensus around things that was there uh you know up until 2016 has really been upset, and so you see some of the most of the candidates are sort of promoting things like universal health care. Many are open to the idea of a green new deal. All of things which would really involve a robust kind of um, expansion of the U.S. state power, U.S. governmental power, for the sake of doing major, um, you know, social goods and social projects, which have been off the table the last couple decades. And so it's likely that the nominee, uh, whoever they are, is going to have to have uh, uh, is going to have a more progressive, younger, more diverse constituency and new policy ideas uh, to address whether that's an older person or a veteran who's seen to be a kind of centrist like Joe Biden, or whether it's um, Bernie Sanders again, or whether it's one of the many other people, including a lot of people with sort of impressive resumes and, you know, all the skills in the world, including people like Elizabeth Warren, uh, who's a senator from Massachusetts, uh, who's um, been a tremendous consumer right advocate and has been calling on, uh, you know, a breakup of the tech giants and views them as sort of monopolies like any other. I mean, she's putting really interesting ideas out there. You have um, Kamala Harris, who's an African-American woman, who's a former um, attorney general of California, uh, who's seen as a major contender. However, frankly, as a prosecutor, she's uh, not viewed as particularly progressive and has in many cases sort of been involved in 
in criminal prosecutions, which are increasingly viewed by progressives as being, um, you know, too harsh. So there's some there's some knocks against her, although she has formidable skills as well. And there's just an endless list of people, and most of them are women. Um, and then there are other people of color. There are, there are um, you know, Julian Castro, there's Pete Buttigieg, the, um, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's the first gay man ever to run for president, is also actually a very impressive guy, despite not holding uh, an office which you might associate with someone running for president. There's an endless list. Um, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, um, all high-profile young senators who've been positioning themselves uh, to do this for some time. But the, the, the slate will winnow itself down, and certainly if Mr. Biden does get into it, he will be, along with uh, Bernie Sanders, in a kind of front-runner position. But it will be interesting to see if two septuagenarians can sort of remain in that position in the context of the changes that have gone on in the Democratic Party. Ironically, even if some of those changes have been brought about by Bernie Sanders' dynamism the 2016 race, it's not clear that that benefit will redound to him now. I think Joe Biden's probably the safe choice and the one that a lot of people in the establishment want. I think it would be a mistaken uh, choice because I think there's always a risk with a kind of mainstream, um, sort of centrist, status quo uh, Democrat that um, people who aren't that enthusiastic, young people, people of color, new voters, that they just say, eh, whatever, they don't get out and vote. And you really need those in, those people to drive enthusiasm on the Democratic side if the Democrats are going to avoid having a repeat of the Hillary Clinton uh, situation in 2016. As always, Jeff, perfect stuff. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Shane. We'll uh, look forward to talking to you next week. That was lawyer and lecturer up at TRU, Jeffrey Myers, discussing the latest in the SNC-Lavalin affair, which continues to plague the Prime Minister and his government. We'll, of course, keep talking to Jeffrey as we do every Tuesday right here on The Woodford Show. My thanks to Jeffrey and the rest of my guests on today's show, and that brings it all to a wrap. We'll see you again for a new edition of The Woodford Show, same time, same channel here on Radio Now tomorrow. Where the interior stays connected. This is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.